Good morning. My name is Kasper Torres. I am a member of His People Church in Peter Maritzburg, and I'm delighted to bring the word uh, this morning. I hope you would be blessed in our service. When I was preparing, the Lord reminded me of the scripture in 1 Timothy 4 verse 16, where Paul wrote to Timothy, Be conscientious about how you live and what you teach. Persevere in it, because by doing so, you will save both yourself and those who listen to you. Um, I mention this because we take uh, preaching the word very seriously. We don't take it lightly. And I can give you the assurance that everyone who brings the word from the pulpit of this church is really hearing from the Lord. Um, and trusting the Lord to speak through the preacher and bring the word that he wants the people to hear. Shall we pray? Father God, we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are present amongst us in our midst. We thank you that you love being present. Lord, I ask that you would now speak to us, that you would use me to say not which I think or to be said, but that which you want us to hear this morning. And I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. First of all, I need to qualify something first. Jesus came to earth as a human being. And I have heard and read criticism uh, being levied against um, pastors who, and, and well-renowned pastors who in a preach made a statement, for instance, that Jesus laid down his deity or Jesus laid down the throne to come to earth. And they are being uh, criticized and it's said that um, what they say is blasphemy and it's not scriptural and so on. Now, I want to make it clear that what I'm saying, and I believe those pastors who have been criticized as well, what we are saying is that there was something which Jesus had to sacrifice, which he had to lay down when he came to earth. Scripture tells us um, in John 1 that the Word became flesh. You see, Jesus' sacrifice had to be authentic. It had to be real. His walk on life had to be real. And therefore, uh, I don't want to get in an academic debate as to what was laid down and what not. Jesus is and was always the Son of God. There's no doubt about it. And we're not at any stage whatsoever um, suggesting anything else. The fact of the matter is, he did sacrifice something to become flesh, to be born from a woman and to walk this earth amongst us. So I just want us to be clear on that. Um, this morning I am continuing with the theme that Jacques preached on last week in the run-up to the Easter weekend 
um, this time of Lent. Jesus, you'll, uh, Jack, you'll remember, um, looked at the um, testing or temptation of Jesus by the devil. Um, he said that he initially thought that he would be looking at all three, the temptations, but then whilst he was busy preparing, he realized that he doesn't have enough time. He can only focus on the first one. Now, after his um, work last week, I was prompted by the Lord to continue with that. So it's not a planned thing beforehand. Um, and I thought that maybe I'll look at the second and third temptations but also there's so much in it that I don't have time for to, to deal with all, both the second and the third. I can only deal with the second one. So um, I therefore want us to look at the second temptation in this sermon which I've termed or titled Don't Jump. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me to Matthew 4. We're going to read from verses 5 to 7. I'm reading from the New Inter International Version. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. I want us to look at this uh, temptation under three subheadings. The first is the scene where this takes place. What did it look like? Secondly, what was the actual test, the actual temptation? And then thirdly, I want to see if we can take something from this um, and apply it to our lives. So first of all, the scene where this takes place. Um, you'll recall that um, for the first temptation, the devil um, tempted Jesus in the desert. Jacques referred to the fact that the desert in, in Scripture is often referred to, to as a place where someone would go to disengage from others, to um, disengage from activities so that he can or she can focus on the Lord and connect with God and distract it. Now we read in Matthew 4 verse 1 that then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Mark describes it as follows in uh, verse 12 of chapter 1. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. At once, meaning after the um, baptism of Jesus in the um, previous part that, that um, uh, Mark dealt with. And Luke describes it in, in chapter 4 as follows, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So it is clear that after the baptism, Jesus was led 
by the Holy Spirit who descended upon him after he was baptized um, and um, when the Father also declared in open public that this is my beloved son so the Spirit then leads him into the desert for what purpose for the sole purpose to be tempted we see that from three of the of the Gospels is led into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil um, and <clears throat> the desert is also a place that is known to be dry um, one can can consider a desert to signify a place where there is not much life often you would hear people talking about a desert or a desolate uh, land as a God-forsaken land. Now I'm not at once trying to suggest that whilst Jesus was in the desert for 40 days being tempted that God forsook him. Not at all. I am simply trying to show the um, contrast between the scene that in which the first temptation took place and the scene where the second temptation took place. For the second test, we read that the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, where is the holy city? What is the holy city? We know that it is Jerusalem, the city of David, also referred to in scripture as Zion. Um, in order to properly understand this, this, it is necessary for us just to consider Zion and the importance of Zion. It is described in Psalm 76 as follows, God is renowned in Judah, in Israel his name is great. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling in Zion. And in Psalm 87 verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than any other dwelling in Jacob. He loves it more than any other dwelling. In Psalm 132, the psalmist says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. Psalm 14 verse 7 says, Oh, what salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Psalm 48, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zephron, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Revelation 14 verse 1, we read, I will write, sorry, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name on their foreheads. Revelation 3.12 says, I will write on them the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name so you will see 
as we continue that that there was a lot of planning into this temptation by the devil it was extremely difficult uh, extremely important for him to succeed so it's no coincidence that he takes Jesus to Zion the place which the Lord calls his dwelling he takes him to the temple now in those days the temple was the place where the Lord resided today we talk about the church the building as the meeting place we know that it is not the church as such we are the church the Lord residing in us but in the Old Testament days and in the time that this temptation takes place the temple was um, what one can describe as um, the Lord's principal place of business on earth uh, or principal place of, of residence on earth is headquarters Kings 1 Kings 8 6 to 7 we read that the priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple the most holy place and put it beneath the wings of the cerebrum the cerebrum spread the wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark in its carrying and its carrying poles when the priests withdrew from the holy place the cloud filled the temple of the lord and the priests could not perform their services because of the cloud for the glory of the lord filled the temple then Solomon said, The Lord has said that you would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell for, forever. So you can see that this scene is quite different from the desert scene, from a desolate place. This is the place where the presence of the Lord dwells. It was meticulously planned by the devil, as I said. We read in, in Genesis 3 verse 1 that the serpent is the craftiest of all the animals. Now, I don't want to give the devil um, too much attention. I don't want to give him recognition or honor at all. But it's important, I think, that we know who and what we are dealing with. We read in Matthew um, 4 verse 6 that um, the devil quotes from Psalm 91, 11 to 12 when he says to Jesus, He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. If we take a close look at Psalm 91, especially verse 1 to see who that psalm is directed at we see that it's addressed to ye who dwells in the shelter of the most high verse 2 the psalmist says I will say to the Lord he is my refuge and my shelter my God in whom I trust so the psalm to which the devil refers also deals with the shelter and the dwelling of the Lord.
Now the highest temp the highest place in the temple um, is the point where he takes Jesus. The temple which was built by, by Solomon was extended in 20 before Christ by, by the then King Herod. He extended it um, and the research I've done indicates that the highest point of the temple was 15 stories high. It was approximately 45.72 meters, they say. Now, I never appreciated that it was that high. As a boy, I grew up um, and we attended a traditional Afrikaans church, um, which had a, a tower with a sharp point. And I would say it was probably about three or four stories high. And I, whenever I heard or read this piece of scripture, I imagined Jesus standing on that tower, on that sharp point. And because it was Jesus, he could stand there. He could stand on that sharp point, even if he was barefoot. And I always wondered where the devil was, because the, there was no space for the devil on the tower as well, on that sharp point. Um, and in any event, he wouldn't be able, like Jesus, to stand there. Um, but uh, why I mention this is, in my mind's eye, as a, as a young boy, it wasn't that far. The, the tower wasn't that high, so I could imagine that someone can perhaps jump off that tower. But it's a lot different, four stories or three stories, as opposed to um, 15 stories. Peter Maritzburg's um, highest building is Park Avenue, which is a stone throw away from, from the church where we are now. It consists of 24 stories and it's 89 meters high. Another building in close vicinity is the Netbank Plaza building. That consists of 18 stories and it's 67 meters high. So I think that would give us a better picture. Imagine someone standing on the Durban Plaza building. Certainly, if someone wants to jump from that building, um, it would be observed. It would be noticed. The highest point of the temple in those days was also the place that was used by the priests to have the, um, the trumpets blown if there was an important uh, message to be relayed or announcement to be made. So if we look at the temple, it was the highest building. Everyone knew where it was. You could see it from anywhere in the city. And it was important because if there was a, uh, an important announcement to be made, it would attention would be drawn from that point to the people. So the devil takes Jesus for this specific temptation to the city which the Father loves, to the temple which is the, the dwelling of the Lord, to the highest place where it can't be missed. What does the temptation look like? He says to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. The, f 
first intention, the devil also addressed Jesus, uh, Jesus um, with reference to his identity. But on this occasion, my view is that he does not do that to um, create doubt as to Jesus' identity, as he did in, for instance, Genesis 3. I think it's 3 verse 1 where he goes to, to Eve and he says, Did God really say you will die? And later he says, Surely you wouldn't die. On this occasion, my interpretation is that he says, If you are the Son of God, some translations use the word since you are the Son of God. He does that as a challenge. He's challenging Jesus to jump. Because he says to him, if you are the Son of God, jump, because you know you would send his angels to protect you. The devil saw this plan of his as a win-win situation. If Jesus jumped and the Father did not send his angels to save him, I think it would be safe to say, considering how advanced the medical science were in those days, someone jumping 15 uh, stories would not survive it. In, with creation, God's idea, desire, was to spend eternity with man, was to have fellowship with us, to walk with us in the cool of the day, cool of the afternoon. The devil came and he derailed that plan when he led man to sin, and that resulted in the Father coming forward with a plan where he would take his only son and he will sacrifice him to die for man's sin so that we can be saved. If Jesus jumped and died because the Father didn't send his angels to protect him, that would be the end of that plan because the father can't then come and say I'm going to send another son because remember he said my only son if Jesus jumped and the father sent angels to protect him then again the devil would succeed because right from the start right from the, the exodus out of Egypt, the Father laid the foundation of how this salvation would look when the Israelites had to sacrifice a lamb without any defect. The blood of a lamb without defect is all that can bring salvation. Therefore, his son had to be without defect without sin. So if Jesus jumped 
and was saved by the angels, then first of all, he would have listened to this, to, to Satan. He would not be without sin. The sacrifice would then not be what is required. Secondly, if he jumped, it would have been seen by all the, the, the people in, in the plain and in the streets. If angels would then miraculously save him, it would be observed how this man jumping 15 stories are caught by angels. They carry him in their hands. He doesn't even injure his toe. So if that man would then later proclaim to be the Son of God, people would say, yes, of course you are the Son of God because God sent his angels to protect you. Believing that he is the Son of God, they would not crucify him. If Jesus did not decide to jump, so the Satan um, reckoned, it would mean that he does not believe that the Father will save him. So he was sure that Jesus would jump. But you see, there's one um, fatal flaw in this plan, this master plan of the devil. And that flaw is that he directed this plan at the master with a capital M who set in place the plan with a capital P. And although the devil is crafty, he is just not clever enough to derail the plan. The devil is crafty, Jesus is clever. So what was being tested here? Many scholars argue that um, the test was to see if Jesus would act independently, independently from the Father, whether he would use the opportunity to draw large crowds to follow him, whether he would enjoy a spectacular event for his own personal honor. And some says that it was a test to see if he has faith in the words of his father. Now, I can't argue with the correctness of any of those interpretations. In fact, Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us that he was tempted in every way, just as we are tempted, but was without sin. So, therefore, I think it's safe to argue that this temptation was not directed at any one specific aspect of the life. It was directed at many facets of Jesus. Um, to me, the most important aspect of the test is to be found in Jesus' response to this challenge. He responded by referring 
cited to Deuteronomy 6 verse 16, which, if quoted in full, reads as follows, Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa. Now, Massa was the place which Moses gave, uh, was the name which Moses gave to the place where at um, the Mount Horeb he had to heat the rock with his cane so that water can flow from it. Um, the people were thirsty, they were moaning and groaning. Um, and um, Moses then said, and we read that in Exodus 17, verse 7, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord amongst us or not? The devil wants Jesus to say, Is the Father with me there at the place where the Father dwells? What does it mean to test the Lord? I think it is when you put yourself in a situation from where there is no escape, and then you have to say, Lord, please, I believe you would save me. I believe you would help me. I believe you would pull me out of this situation. You see, by jumping, Jesus would intentionally do something where if it's not then for the intervention of the Father, you would die. There's nothing he can do to reverse the situation once he jumps. And that would be testing the Lord um, as opposed to to having faith in the Lord. I remember when, when a couple of years ago our children were, were still in primary school and um, the church we, we were part of or members of also had a, a strong um, uh, influence or work on, on campus among students and um, on, in one church meeting the, the youth pastor called a couple of students to testify and bring testimonies and there was one person I can't remember if it was a, a male or female student came up and, and testified that um, he or she let's say it was a let's say it was a he um, didn't study during the the term there was too much student life too much activities in which he participated so the evening before a particular paper to be written he realized that he knows nothing and that he can't pass this paper so he prayed to the Lord and he asked the Lord to help him he then spotted two questions studied it and the next day those two questions were in the paper and um, because he knew the, the questions he could manage to get just enough to pass and he gave glory to the Lord and honor to the Lord and that upset me um, I then had a discussion with the youth pastor afterwards and I said we can't have these testimonies where we create the impression that you don't have to do anything but pray the evening before and you will pass it's not a good life lesson to to bring to my children and to other students um, and well, the 
pastorate differed from me and the outcome was unpleasant, but be that as it may, that to me is an example and we're probably all guilty of it at some stage, where the Father, the Lord, is put to the test. Um, last week, Jock said that Jesus responded to the devil's temptation by pulling out his sword, which is the word of God. Um, in this instance, Jesus did the same, but he didn't just defend, he actually attacked. Because when he refers the devil to a scripture, he refers him to the instance where the Israelites rebelled against the Lord. And we know that God hates rebellion. He says it's, it's like witchcraft. Uh, Satan was a rebel. He stood up against the Lord. He wanted to be God. And that we read in, in Revelation 12, 7 to 9 caused him, his rebellion, caused him to be thrown from heaven with all his angels. So what Jesus does with, with his, the response is he takes his sword and he plunges it. He sticks it directly into the devil's heart. He says to him, apart from um, reminding him that you should not test the Lord, but he does it in a way that that he reminds him of who he is. He reminds him that he's a rebel. He reminds him that he was thrown from heaven. He reminds him of his future, of which there is none. What, what can we take from this temptation, from this scripture? What can we apply? Well, I think firstly, we must be aware of how crafty and skilled the enemy is. And again, I don't want to um, go and pull him out behind every bush. I don't want us to, to think that he's, he's always hiding everywhere and that he is in everything and giving um, credit where, where no credit is is um, due, but we must be aware of the fact that he is the and that his plan is to separate us from God. I once heard it being said that if in living your life you you don't get opposition from the enemy then you're probably not doing anything that that is upsetting you or put differently if in your life you where you do what you believe the Lord has placed on you if walking the road that you believe the Lord wants you to walk if in doing that you constantly have opposition from the enemy then you're probably doing something that is concerning to him and that's getting him worried. The second thing is 
and that we must be ready with our sword at all times. We must have it with us at all times. How do we do it? Um, scripture says um, in the Old Testament, uh, write it on your forehead, have it with you all the time. And we know that um, people used to, and I believe some still, have the actual laws in a small scroll uh, in a container to uh, bound to, to their foreheads. We don't have to do that. I think it's better to have it in our head. Spend time in scripture. Spend time in prayer. So that you know the scripture. You know also where it is. So that when you get attacked by the enemy, you can pull out that sword without then having to try and find the instructor's manual and see how it works. You can pull it out and you can immediately defend and attack with it. Spend time with the Holy Spirit to guide you and to lead you. Thirdly, we should distinguish between trusting God and testing God. We must walk so that we don't get into a situation, we don't get ourselves into a situation where we test God. And then lastly, the highest point of the temple was also the point that was the furthest away from the Holy of Holies, where the presence was. So the place where you would be seen, a place where it would be glamorous, a place where you could get recognition and honor, is not always the place, not always the Holy of Holies. So let's always rather seek to be in the presence, to be as close as possible to the presence of the Father, than to be out there where we can shine. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you that you care for us. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you came to earth. that you walked the planet, that you went through the temptations and the tests, that you never sinned, that you lived a life of a sacrificial life, and that you gave your life, that you were willing to go on that cross, to die that death, to be forsaken by the Father, so that we can live. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that your desire is to be with us at all times. We thank you. Amen. And amen.